Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I am so glad to be back with you guys. It feels like ages since we've had class. We've had our holiday break. We're back here in the beginning of 2019, now two years into this project, and by golly, we're almost to the Ford of Bruinen. We are so close to the Ford of Bruinen right now. Uh, so we're going to continue tonight with our discussion of Glorfindel. We just got to meet Glorfindel, talked about the white light shining through uh, the form and raiment of the rider, uh, and uh, spent some time <laughs> Spent some time talking about whether or not Glorfindel would have been singing tra la la lolly uh, in Rivendell, uh, to which I think the answer is obviously yes. So, um, anyhow, so <laughs> that's where we were, if you remember, uh, uh, weeks ago, uh, when last we met. Um, but uh, uh, it's good to be back. Before we uh, get going too far, I've got three... Announcements. Uh, these are all three things that are coming up quite soon. So let me do them in uh, in in. Let's see. Let me do them in order of soonness. The uh, first thing that is happening is we are uh, we're running a, a special which has been going on since Tolkien since just before Tolkien's birthday. Um, uh, doing a, a special for an any t for the uh, the anytime audit tuition for our Lewis and Tolkien class. It's one of the. It's the second course, actually, I ever taught. I think the recording is from the second time I, I, I taught it. But the Lewis and Tolkien course was the second course I ever taught uh, at Signum University. Uh, and uh, spring of 2012, I'm pretty sure, was the first time I ever taught it. And uh, anyway, awesome class. Really, really fun. Um, uh, the, 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 the sort of the theme of that class, it's not just sort of a survey of Tolkien and Lewis's works. What I, what I tried to do in that class was look at when Lewis and Tolkien both do sort of similar things, when they both are interested in similar uh, ideas or sort of approaching similar concepts or undertaking similar kinds of, of sort of creative projects in their work and putting those things uh, side to side. Uh, so we looked, for, uh, for instance, at both The Hobbit and uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, both of which are them doing children's stories and sort of looking at the, 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 the ways to approach uh, children, bringing children into stories and, and, uh, and sort of dealing with kind of the, uh, the, the, the whole project of, of writing for children, right? Um, that's one example. I, you know, I looked at them attacking certain myths, right? We looked at the... Uh, we had a guest... No, wait, is that... No, I was thinking of a different class. Um, we, we, we looked at the Numenor myth um, that Tolkien... When Tolkien was, was approaching the Numenor myth and trying to do the Numenor... The, the, uh, sorry, the, the Atlantis myth through, new, through the Numenor story. And then looking at uh, uh, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis uh, and his looking at the Cupid and Psyche myth. That kind of thing. Really, really fun. Um, anyway, so that class is, uh, that is where, so we're having our special for that, sort of celebrating Lewis and Tolkien uh, over Tolkien's birthday. And uh, that sale ends on Saturday of this week, the 12th of January. So uh, the tuition for the Lewis and Tolkien class is only $75 uh, for the next few days, uh, just through the end of the week there. So I encourage you, if you haven't, uh, uh, if you've been thinking about doing an Anytime Audit, that's a really fun one. Our Anytime Audit program uh, has been uh, 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 increasingly popular. It's been really cool uh, to see people really uh, discovering that. It's been a lot of fun. 
Um, you get to access all of the recorded lectures for a class, plus all of the, the readings and, and handouts and class materials. And you also, of course, get a Signum student ID, which means you can access our library resources and everything like that. So it's, it's a sort of a, a fun extra bonus to uh, being uh, an official Signum auditor uh, for a while. So uh, pretty, uh, uh, pretty fun. Anyway, so uh, special on that that goes through the end of this week. The next thing in order of soonness uh, is next Monday. Next Monday is the uh, uh, the first day of our semester. Our spring semester at Signum starts. Uh, so if you've been thinking about maybe possibly auditing one of our courses that's running this coming spring, um, then uh, you're not quite out of time. It's possible to join up to two weeks into the class, but of course, obviously, gets a little more awkward the further we get into the actual class meeting. So our classes begin on Monday, so if you want to, if you're thinking about auditing or enrolling for credit, if you're one of our credit students and uh, have still not fully decided yet, now's the time. Time is coming uh, is, is coming soon here, so uh, definitely uh, uh, act on that. Our classes begin on Monday. So that's the second thing. The third soonest thing that is happening uh, is um, uh, TextMoot. TextMoot is happening on the 19th. Now, perhaps arguably I should have started with that, because actually the very soonest thing that's happening is that registration is closing for TextMoot. TextMoot is going to be a great, great crowd. We're, you know, pushing up towards 100 people coming to TextMoot this year. Uh, Really wonderful uh, uh, turnout for TextMoot. And I'm looking for. I haven't done a regional moot in months. It's been since it's been since before Thanksgiving uh, that I've been to a regional moot. Uh, so that's uh, actually uh, uh, really fun. So I'm looking forward to going down. We're going to be down in Waco, Texas this year. So if you're anywhere in the region, you can you can you can come by. Registration's really cheap. You can come and have an awesome day with us. Um, get to not only hang out for the day and listen to, to some awesome presentations uh, and take part in some really cool discussions, but then we'll get to come to the come to the after party with us and hang out for a while. It's such a great day. Uh, so I hope you'll be able to join us Waco, Texas on the 19th. Go to textmoot.org to get the registration details or signumuniversity.org and scroll down to our events page uh, and that will uh, bring you through. You can register there. Registration again is open. Uh, through soon (laughs) through the 9th I think it's it's through tomorrow Uh, so definitely if you're thinking about maybe coming yeah the 9th uh, don't delay uh, on that because we are almost up to the deadline there for registration so um uh, yeah, so uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, if you're registered, I believe that we you should be getting an email about details. There's going to be a thing the night before, too. Like, again, like the, uh, uh, the fun never stops down in Texas. So uh, we're going to be getting together the night before and the night after. Uh, it's going to be, you know, like 36 hours of party at TexMoot. So um, there'll definitely be, be details for that that'll, uh, that'll, that'll go out to you. So, Tony, I suspect a certain quantity of barbecue will be consumed. I know we had the after party at a barbecue place last year, which was really good. Uh, and uh, uh, and I was uh, where I discovered that fried okra is really good, right? I'd only ever had okra once before in my life, and it was dreadful. I had it, like, steamed or boiled. I don't know how it was cooked, but it was slimy and disgusting, and I was convinced that okra was, like, the most disgusting vegetable on God's earth. Um, and then someone was like, you've never had it fried? And I'm like, no, I've never had it fried. So anyway, 
it was at the post-text mood party that I discovered how okra was actually designed to be to be consumed. <laughs> so anyway, it was good. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, JJ, I know. Like, it is possible to prepare okra non-fried. I don't remember who did it. It was it was some irresponsible uh, uh, establishment, clearly. But see, this is like me, a northerner, not knowing, right? I mean, I'm looking at this okra, and I'm you know, I, I'm a Yankee. I've never had okra before, and so I'm looking at it. I'm like, what do I even do with this? I don't even know. Um, but anyway, yeah, certainly. Uh, 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 having it deep fried (laughs) certainly changed my opinion of okra, no question Um, anyhow okay, so (laughs) with with that note just a little sampling of uh, one of the things I learned at uh, at our our Texas after party last year Um, yeah, oh Bruinier I love grits actually, I have to say uh, grits are one of the very few things I retain from my childhood, when I was when I was uh, when I was like in elementary school, uh, I grew up in southern West Virginia, uh, you know, like out out in the hills. I mean, like all of West Virginia, right? Uh, but uh, I was anyway. I was out in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia, and I did uh, used to have grits when I was a kid, and I, I've ever since I was a kid loved grits. Just it's one of the things that I always most look forward to whenever I go south is ordering grits. Um, but uh, anyhow, all right. Let's, um, uh, let's, let us move forward and talk about the text because we've got a lot of Glorfindel, uh, to cover here, uh, as much as I could talk about Southern cuisine for a while longer, concerning which I had real cornbread down in Charlotte, which was really cool. Uh, but anyhow, never mind. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to, let's talk about Glorfindel. So, um, all right, let's see. Okay, so before we go back to the text, we have two, um, uh, two. there were a bunch of really good comments on the discussion board, as always. Um, I picked two that were, um, okay, I didn't make a slide of the, uh, for the person who wanted to talk about Tom Bombadil again. And again, I have a lot of sympathy for this. I know that there are many people who are joining us, you know, who have discovered us during the last two years right, and haven't been with us from the beginning and who are still in the process of catching up and want to post questions. And I, I'm in real sympathy with that, though it's hard for us to spend a lot of time going back. Um, but So let me just give a quick answer to the person who is... Uh, so when you finally get to this episode, like several months from now, you will hear me answer your question. Um, uh, simply, uh, the, the idea of, like, is Tom Bombadil possibly a spirit of the earth, like of this world, rather than one of the Ainur who descended in. Um, Personally, I don't believe that. And here's why. I think that the marriage of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry is really, it's, it's almost like it's a little homey sort of neighborhood domestic version of the marriage of heaven and earth. I think, I think that Tom Bombadil is one of the spirits who descended into Arda. And I think that Goldberry is one of the spirits of Arda who is sort of native with Arda or, you know, just part of Arda, part of the expression of Arda. Um, but I think that Tom is not because I think that the two of them are not just like two paired off local spirits. Um, but I see them as a kind of marriage of the two things. Uh, and therefore, 
Tom Bombadil and Goldberry's marriage uh, and their whole little domain as this kind of little microcosm of, you know, like how things could be, how things should be, you know, um, on on Middle Earth. So just that's my quick answer to the Tom Bombadil question, which I'm not even going to read because uh, I don't want to get too far into it. But I just I, I did want to want to throw that out there. Um, Arda unmarred, yeah, sort of. I don't know. I wouldn't, wouldn't go quite that far. I mean, it's, there's obviously marring involved. There's evil there, right? I mean, there's Old Man Willow. There's the Barrow. I mean, there's there's always not perfect. Always not uh, you know ideal completely within Tom's realm. But I do think that their combination, you know, again, just like in the abstract, sort of the the marriage of of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. Uh, really is this kind of picture of the harmony that um, the harmony of which Arda really is an expression right through the song um, uh, you know the the way in which the different voices of the uh, of the song are are blended to form Arda I think that 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 Tom and, and Goldberry are really sort of an expression of that that's that's how I uh, like to think of them anyway so um yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to get too far into that, but I just wanted to throw that one little point out there. Uh, so let's move on. To, there were two uh, Glorfindel-related questions, which I wanted to get to. So first, um, Johannes uh, made a great, uh, uh, a great point, you know, that we got so sidetracked in talking about whether or not Gorfindel was singing tra la la that we kind of left one of the points from the last slide, and I think he's very right uh, uh, to draw us back to it, because I think it's important. Uh, two sentences he quotes, one, but Strider was now leaning forward, stooped to the ground with a hand to his ear and a look of joy on his face. Joy is a pretty strong word, Johannes says. As Zephan 12 pointed out in the Discord chat, how often do we see Strider with a look of joy? here and at Cormallon? While traveling with Strider, we have learned that he is very capable in almost any situation, and extremely experienced when it comes to journeying in the wild, especially when compared to the hobbits. Ever since we met Strider in Bree, he's also been the embodiment of caution. Therefore, I think his relief in seeing Glorfindel shows how worn out he actually is. Uh, and then again, the quote, Strider sprang from hiding and dashed down towards the road, leaping with a cry through the, he- through the heather. He throws all caution to the wind, yells aloud, and dashes out into, into the middle of the road. What could make Strider react like this? Um, and by the way, I liked uh, uh, Zephan's comment that he made uh, 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 later to this point, uh, saying that, I mean, notice how, like, the kind of risk that Strider is running, right? You can sort of see how relieved Strider is in that he's ditching the hobbits, right? And not, not only drawing attention to himself and, uh, as Johannes says, uh, throwing caution completely to the winds, but leaving the hobbits behind, right? Alone, uh, while he goes down and talks to Gorfindel, leaving them to follow him uh, on their own. I think that's a very good point, uh, and, and I agree. It does seem a, a really significant moment. As we have discussed in earlier sessions, Strider has probably not been sleeping much. 
Possibly not at all since he joined the Hobbits. He has been leader, guide, and lookout, and he has had the threat of the Ringwraiths looming over him constantly, which we know is no small thing for him personally, his PTSD moment, remember, in the, in the Prancing Pony. I believe that Strider is on the point of exhaustion, not so much because of the physical strain, he's capable of great physical feats, but more because of the mental and spiritual strain. For one, he has the pressure of responsibility laid on him, not just to keep the Hobbits safe, but also to keep the Ring from the enemy. He is fully aware of what's at stake. Also, we have, as we have mentioned before, Strider doubts his own decisions. He's probably feeling guilty over what happened to Frodo on Weathertop. When he's telling Sam not to despair, I get the feeling he's putting on a brave face. He knows how deadly the wound is, and I don't think he could predict how resilient Frodo would turn out to be. After the disaster on Weathertop, I'm pretty sure Strider never sleeps. He, he knows how urgent it is to get Frodo to Rivendell, and he knows that the Ringwraiths could attack again at any moment. On top of all this is the constant spiritual attack from the Ringwraiths. So, physically tired, mentally drained, and spiritually shaken, I think this is the most messed up we ever see Strider. That's my explanation of why Strider acts the way he does when he sees Gorfindel. He's feeling overwhelming relief. Finally, someone to assist him and share the responsibility. I agree. Think of the, the comments. Remember when Strider is going to comment on, on this kind of thing more openly at the end of book two, right after Gandalf's fall? Oops, spoilers. Um, uh, when he's left in charge of the, of the group, right? You know, and and he, he's feeling that. He comments on it. Right. That, uh, uh, you know, the 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 burden of of leadership has fallen on him since uh, since Gandalf's fall. So we know that that kind of thing does weigh on him. It's not like, hey, Strider is not used to leadership. Right. It's not um, um, it's not just it's not just that. Right. Yes. OK. Yeah. OK. Like leadership. He's OK with leadership in general. But it's this is a big deal, <laughs> and right now, especially with Gandalf AWOL and 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 not, not having any idea if any backup is going to be able to be his at all, it's him against, as far as he knows, all of the nine. Right? He doesn't know where the other four were uh, uh, at uh, Weathertop, but. He assumes they're around somewhere, right? He's expecting. I left out the quotations that Johannes gave of the time when he's like expecting an inevitable traps in front of them, right? You know, he he feels pretty certain uh, that uh, they're not going to be able to make it through. He knows that it's to say that the odds are against them as he's trying to lead them through is is a pretty significant understatement, right? Um, so I agree. He's he's under extreme pressure, and I think um, that seems to me a fair assessment. Um, uh, Johannes also went on to look at some other moments uh, later in the text when we see Strider strained, right? Such as when he is, you know, in the wingfoot journey, right, uh, on foot across Rohan in pursuit of the hobbits, or after his struggle with Sauron and the Palantir, or after the ride of the Paths of the Dead. And Johannes was making an argument to say this this moment here could be the furthest towards the end of his rope that we see Strider even taking all of those other things uh, into account. And I, I think there's an argument to be made there. Um, I think you could argue that some of those others are, are at least more intense uh, in some uh, area or other, but certainly there's no question. This ranks really high up there uh, in, you know, one of the greatest kind of crises of, of Strider's adult life, as far as we know. Um, so I think that that's, 
that's true. And, and then thinking about that. And then I want to go back to another comment that, uh, that Zephan made in, uh, in response to this comment. Um, he was pointing out, notice that the word that Tolkien uses is not relief, right? Um, Strider doesn't stoop to the ground with a hand to his ear, a look of relief on his face, but it's a look of joy. It's, that's more than just relief, right? There's, there's, there's positive, uh, it's a positive thing. It's not just the release of tension. It's not just, um, you know, being liberated from soul responsibility. It's not just, uh, seeing an ally come. It is this, this positive joy that comes to him. And I love Zephan's emphasis on how, yes, he is exhausted. You can, can you tell how exhausted he's so exhausted that he's now, uh, springing and dashing and leaping and crying. Look at all those verbs in that second sentence, right? Sprang, dashed, leaping, right? With a cry, right? Which suggests this uh, upflowing of energy through him, right? Because of the joy, right? The joy of seeing Glorfindel. Um, and uh, and I certainly agree. There are definitely other factors as well, Um you know, Fourth Dauntless and JJ are thinking about the, the relationship between Gorfindel and Aragorn. That um, that it you know describes a reunion with an old friend. Absolutely, um, JJ suggests Glorfindel might be something like a favorite uncle uh, for Aragorn. Certainly, Aragorn, growing up in Rivendell, would know Glorfindel quite well. Um, absolutely, and we do see something of a similar kind of joy. Um, when he meets Halbered, right again, as Johannes was also pointing out in his longer original post, um, when he meets Halbered uh, down uh, in Rohan, right uh, in uh, at the beginning of of uh, uh, where is it? It's the beginning of Book Five, right? Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, he does. But again, compare and contrast those scenes, right? Yes, he's delighted to see Halbered. Right, um, he's clearly very happy, but it's nothing. We don't get we don't get springing and leaping right when he when he meets Halbert again. Um, yeah, I like that. Uh, Tormarthen says this is Aragorn's version of elves, sir. Right? Yes, that kind of that kind of enthusiasm. It's a different context, right? But yeah, um, Aragorn expresses things differently, and I agree. We've not seen Aragorn effusive before. And I think you can certainly argue this is the most effusive we're ever going to see him. I mean, even when Gandalf comes back... Oops, spoilers! Um, even when Gandalf comes back, he's not going to be like this, right? It's not going to be any leaping or springing there either, right? I mean, that, of course, in its way is is too great and solemn a, a sort of a shock in a moment. Um, he just sort of stands there amazed when Gandalf comes back. But, um, but yeah, we're never going to see him this demonstrative, like ever, um, ever. I don't think. Is there a single example of Aragorn being this demonstratively happy about anything ever? Um, yeah, yeah. Tony, I agree. This is the victory of hope over despair. I, I, I think that you can you can show that playing out here. Absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Matt points out that the word joy is also used when Amir recognizes that the ships that are arriving on, are on his side rather than on uh, 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 the enemies. Yeah, 
Cecilia says is one of the reasons why she really likes the the BBC adaptation uh, of this moment, um, you know, of of the Lord of the Rings, uh, compared to other uh, uh, audio adaptations, because it's one of the only ones that really does this moment justice. I think that's a really good point, Cecilia. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay. So people want to argue that he has equal joy you know, awaiting Arwen and, and, you know, with the marriage. It may be, look, I'm not going to try to say that his wedding day wasn't a really happy day for Aragorn, but I am going to say, do we see him leaping? Does he spring anywhere? <laughs> right? Do we see him jumping and waving his arms and shouting? No, we don't. Now and again, not saying he's not happy, not saying there isn't joy involved, um, but we don't see it. This is the only time we ever see him demonstrative, right? No question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Both Erocheb and Johannes are thinking of his discovery of the white tree. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's a second, maybe. But I mean, like, yay, Etuvianius, I have found it, right? That's, that's, that's good. But he's not, I mean, does he leap? Does he spring even like a little bit? Is there any springing? I don't think he springs. <laughs> That's a pretty high standard of demonstrativeness. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, this is uh, I, 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 not trying to make too much of it. But I do. But again, but my point is merely that Johannes's point is extremely well taken, right? I think that, uh, and I, I agree with his overall reading that. What this shows us, what the demonstrativeness of Aragorn's response to Gorfindel here, does it tell us something about his relationship with Gorfindel? Yes, sure. Um, But I think the most important thing is that it does show us something about him. I mean, notice that we've been looking at Strider from the point of view of the hobbits. Even the question of the extent to which he sleeps, right? The hobbits don't seem to catch him sleeping very often, right? I don't think that means he absolutely never sleeps. But still, I mean, he's... He has been shouldering this himself, and they don't know too much what to make of him. Um, and, you know, they're all looking up to him, and he's fulfilling that, right? He's leading them uh, and building, keep, you know, boosting up their spirits and everything. I absolutely agree with, with Johannes that we can see Aragorn must have been pretty close to the raggedy edge uh, when he. Uh, was at this point uh, on his own. Um, and I certainly, I think his really unparalleled demonstrativeness is, is a pretty good indicator. Um, I think of how extremely, um, uh, strained, uh, and weary he had been. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, um, so having talked about that passage, which Johannes was correct, we didn't spend enough time on last time. Um, uh, but um, uh, because we got distracted about the Tralalalali stuff with Gorfindel, it's totally true. So uh, let's talk more about the Tralalalali stuff. This is from, uh, from Mike, from Amy's Revenge. Uh, the notion of great elf lords being all dignity and somberness is, I think, a relic of the bird's eye history text feel of the Silmarillion. If you read the Silmarillion, all you see are, is page after page of elf lords making important decisions and undertaking heroic deeds and demonstrating intense emotions. 
But if you read any survey of any survey history text from the real world, that is also all you see about humans. All we see are important decisions, heroic deeds, and so forth. So can we conclude purely from history texts whether humans ever behave in a silly manner? Of course not. So given the Silmarillion we have, we don't see a lot of examples of how elves act when there isn't serious business afoot. But we do have some examples elsewhere, even outside the questionable authenticity of the Hobbit story. And I take that to mean, of course, that, you know, the Hobbit story not really designed organically to be a part of that world in the first place. So even applying it back into this world is, you know, retconny, right? Because that's why that's what Tolkien did. But uh, but I agree with what Mike goes on to point out here. Consider Gildor and his people. As a group, they are the highest high elves we see in one place at one time on this side of the First Age. And what do we learn of them? So old and young, so gay and sad, is what Sam points out. And we are immediately led to believe that this is a very perceptive insight. Based on all the laughter, and especially on the quick transitions from gaiety to seriousness back and back, what we see in Gildor's discussion with, uh, and back, sorry, that we see in Gildor's discussion with Frodo, I think it's reasonable to conclude that Gildor and his people, if they were in Rivendell 77 years ago, would have been among the Tralalalali elves. I think we can confidently predict that the most impressive of elves would in general, while being doughty in deeds and daring do, also be mighty in mirth and merriment. So I think that Glorfindel, as one of the mightiest elf lords still around, would not just have sung the Tralalalali song. He would have initiated the Tralalalali song. Totally agree. Absolutely agree. Um, again, this is not to say, and one thing I, I want to just kind of add to this, I completely agree with Mike's analysis here. Um, and I the 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 main thing that i would want to point out is that this is not a criticism of the silmarillion you know i think sometimes people sort of want to take that sort of high uh dramatic and even tragic of course uh so often tone of the silmarillion uh, you know and and then it, it kind of looks like an indictment i think this is one of the reasons why so many people dislike chapter 3 of the hobbit or at least the beginning of chapter 3 in the tralalalali song and a lot of people kind of trying to like to th- to think, uh, you know, to pretend that that song doesn't exist uh, in The Hobbit. I get that. Um, but I don't think if you read it back the other way, again, it amounts to anything like a criticism of the Silmarillion. Um, what the Silmarillion does, exactly as Mike says, is it, it spotlights these major events, which are generally heroic and tragic. Um, but of course... It's a very selective narrative. There are it tells us of major events while leaving hundreds and hundreds of years going by, sometimes whole millennia going by, um, in peace and bliss, right? With and they just tell us that everybody was full of bliss for a, you know a thousand years or multiple thousands of years, and then um, uh, and then back to uh, you know back to the tragic action that follows. Um, but what was that like, right? What was, you know, that, so the Silmarillion, it's not its job, right? That narrative is not attempting to, to give us that kind of picture. So the fact that it doesn't give us that picture is not a failure on its part. It's not what it's trying to do, right? However, um, when you try to think back into that, right? When you try to think back into what are elves like on their days off, right? Their centuries off, their millennia off, right? How do they behave? We do 
have lots of reason to think that they behave in ways that some, like very high-minded Tolkien fans and or dwarves, right, might call silly um, or frivolous. Um, and, you know, that's... Um, I, that that seems to me to fit entirely. And I have to admit that um, I did not see for a long time what Mike was pointing out here. It was only recently that this really kind of came home to me, how similar the tone is in not only what Gildor and his people say, but how they say it, the way they interact with the hobbits. We talked about this back when we were looking at the Gildor scenes uh, back there in chapter uh, three. Um, but it is it is exactly like the tone of the elves as they speak to Bilbo and the dwarves um, in chapter three of The Hobbit. It's almost exactly the same. Uh, the tone is, is, is right on. I, I absolutely think that that is an, uh, a, a piece of active retcon on Tolkien's part, actually. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, I, I, I certainly think, I certainly agree with Mike here, and, and there's every reason to think that Gorfindel, as one of the greatest of the elf lords, uh, he, he probably wrote the Trollolali song. <laughs> Wouldn't put it past him at all. Either him or Elrond, one or the other. Not quite sure which. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, anyway. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, cool. Cool. Um, okay. Perhaps it's one of Maglor's. Could be, Erechab, right? Could be. You can't rule it out. You really can't. Um, all right. Um, let's get back to the text. So having sprung and leaped and uh, uh, run down to Gorfindel, and we got to the introduction, uh, Gorfindel dwells in the House of Elrond. We talked about that last time. Uh, so, uh, let's get to the actual, the actual meeting. Hail and well met at last, said the elf lord to Frodo. I was sent from Rivendell to look for you. We feared that you were in danger upon the road. Then Gandalf has reached Rivendell, cried Frodo joyfully. And, yeah, this is what, Marianne, I think, was it, was it you who was just pointing this out a few minutes back? Um, yeah, that, um, that, Gandalf, or, or sorry, the, the 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 fact that joy is used it twice in quick succession there, right? Um, uh, we've got Strider, the, the look of joy on Strider's face, and then Frodo is crying joyfully right away, right? As soon as he talks to, to Gorfindel as well. The thing that I would point out here, which is interesting to me, um, his joy. I was... Cecilia, thanks, Marianne. I knew it was. I knew. I knew it was from the town there. I. I. I, I saw the bar, but I couldn't remember which. Um, anyway, uh, Frodo's joy clearly comes from the prospect of Gandalf, a being safe, b being near, right, c looking out for them and sending them help. Um, Glorfindel looks pretty cool, even you know, to strange eyes, right? Uh, even to people who don't know him personally, like Strider, certainly must. Um, but, you know, there's, it's not, it's, 
the knowledge that he might have been sent by Gandalf, right? He is help that Gandalf has sent. Uh, certainly seems to bring a special kind of joy and relief uh, to Frodo, because, of course, we know, you know, we've seen that Frodo's concern about Gandalf has been very much uh, foremost in his mind ever since he left the Shire, right? Um, And that's certainly what he would be most um, reassured by. Okay. Um, Yeah, good. All right. Sorry, let me keep going. Then Gandalf has reached Rivendell, cried Frodo joyfully. No, he had not when I departed. But that was nine days ago, answered Glorfindel. Elrond received news that troubled him. Some of my kindred, journeying in your land beyond the Baranduin, learned that things were amiss and sent messages as swiftly as they could. They said that the nine were abroad and that you were astray bearing a great burden without guidance, for Gandalf had not returned. There are few even in Rivendell that can ride openly against the Nine, but such as there were, Elrond sent out north, west, and south. It was thought that you might turn far aside to avoid pursuit and become lost in the wilderness. It was my lot to take the road, and I came to the bridge of Mithaethel and left a token there nigh on seven days ago. Three of the servants of Sauron were upon the bridge, but they withdrew, and I pursued them westward. That, by the way, is my favorite Glorfindel sentence in the whole book. Three of the servants of Sauron were upon the bridge, but they withdrew, and I pursued them westward. I came also upon two others, but they turned away southward. Since then I have searched for your trail. Two days ago I found it, and I followed it over the bridge, and today I marked where you descended from the hills again. But come, there is no time for further news. Since you are here, we must risk the peril of the road and go. There are five behind us, and when they find your trail upon the road, they will ride after us like the wind, and they are not all. Where the other four may be, I do not know. I fear that we may find the ford is already held against us. Um, yeah, a couple things. Uh, JJ, I agree. Um, it is interesting to note, isn't it? Glorfindel is not the only one who can ride openly against the Nine. There are not many but there are others, right? Um, I don't know who exactly. I'd love to know who were the other ones who were sent out, right? Um, I'm not quite sure who they would be or if they're named. Um, possibly Aristor. I mean, he's a named elf who seems important, all right, who speaks at the council. Um, maybe the sons of Elrond Tony? I don't really know. Um it must have been Elmo, <laughs> says Seven. Maybe, maybe. Um, but um, anyhow, yeah, I, I'm not sure who it was exactly. Uh, but yes, it's interesting that Gorfindel is not... A, but the fact that he is on the road suggests to me that Gorfindel is probably the greatest of these, right? Because the ones who went north and south into the wilderness... The odds of them finding anybody, and in fact they are not going to find anybody, right, is, is relatively small. Um, safeguarding the road, that, uh, which especially since they have to know enough of the geography uh, to know that, they're, you know, just as Aragorn is finding, right, that, you know, the, the road is our only way to the ford. Even if they did turn aside into the wilderness far to the north or south and become lost, um, if they're going to make it back to the... They're going to have to get to the ford. They're going to have to get to the road. So uh, Glorfindel seems to be sort of the uh, the first line of defense or 
of course, as we see, offense, in fact, uh, there. Marion is wondering if possibly Elrond himself is one of those who went riding out. I wouldn't rule it out, right? It's easy to imagine Elrond as being a, a, a you know, complete stay-at-home, right, uh, who never leaves Rivendell at all. Maybe he did, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Mike, I do assume that probably it's like they're, uh, Noldor still kicking around in Rivendell. Uh, that is most likely, uh, given what we, what we learned. Um, but yeah, so always an answer to your question there. Um, yeah, there would be other Calaquendi. There any, any, any Noldo. And we know like Gildor Inglorian is, is a Noldo, right? So, and presumably, I, I'm like the whole crew, right? Frodo says these are high elves, right? So, like the lot of them that they meet there in the Shire are Noldor. So presumably there would be one or two, uh, as you say, still kicking around in in Rivendell. Um, quite, uh, quite possibly. Um, but uh, now, Trifle, I can definitely see that argument that Elrond would stay to to as the greatest healer, right? To receive them, right, if any of them brought Frodo back. Um, so I agree. If it came to it, I think I would I would imagine Elrond staying home, but it is possible to imagine him riding out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, so, oh yeah, but that, that sentence, right? I mean, come on. How awesome is that sentence? That sentence, uh, you know, that sentence, my, my, uh, uh, that sentence that I highlighted is my favorite Glor- Glorfindel sentence. It is the most like understated boast ever, right? Um, there were three Nazgul on the bridge. So we learned that, in fact, Aragorn's foreboding was a- absolutely correct, right? They were holding the bridge against him, as is the only logical thing for them to do. They know there are only the two ways to cross the two rivers, right? There's the bridge uh, to cross the first river and the ford to cross the second river, right? Uh, so, yes, they positioned, the Witch King was smart enough to position three of the Nazgul on the bridge to prevent them crossing. Glorfindel comes along. They withdrew and I pursued them. Um, <laughs> as, as, as one of you said, you know, ain't it ain't no thing, right? I mean, it's just, I just did that. Um, you know, that's kind of what happens when I run into, you know, Nazgul. They run away from me. Um, <laughs> Brunier says he probably yawned when he said it. Uh, yeah, probably. I liked uh, Eric Hebb's, uh point about, um, uh, I'll say, Dear Diary, saw three Nazgul this morning. Gave them a merry chase, but got bored. We'll continue searching for the ring bearer th- tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, Gorfindel doesn't even have to stand up to the to the Nazgul. They won't stand up to him. Uh, even three on one, they won't uh, stand up to him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, cool. And yes, it was Gorfindel who died and came back, absolutely. So yeah, no, he's he's special in all kinds of ways, right? Um this is the guy who this is the guy who killed Balrog, this is the guy who um uh yeah, you know, this is uh 
Um, this is this is this is this is a big deal. Mad Violinist asks, "Do I think that Gorfindel knows Frodo's mission?" You know, it's hard to say. Um, it's hard to say. I, I mean, on the one hand. Do I think that Elrond would confide in Glorfindel? Yeah, I bet, you know, his secrets are safe with Glorfindel. Um That doesn't mean that he has, right? Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Eternal Cow. Uh, yeah, it is interesting um, that uh, they won't stand up to Glorfindel, but they do stand up to Gandalf, who's one of the Maiar. Yeah, now, first of all, keep in mind... They are going to come riding after Gorfindel when all nine of them are together. Three on one, they won't stand up to him. It does seem that nine on one, they uh, uh, they would stand up even to Gorfindel. Um, and yes, Fourth Dauntless, that's exactly it. They were nine on one against Gandalf. But again, as I've said before, keep in mind... Yes, Gandalf is a is a Maya, but he's incarnate, right? He's in a body. He's not... There is a... It seems to me that the choice to become embodied and to come to Middle-earth was to diminish their powers, right? This is not like, you know, somebody in the First Age going toe-to-toe with Melian, Right? Melian, you know, establishing the girdle and being the force that she was there in the whole center of Beleriand for such a long time, right? She was different, right? She was a Maya living in her own spiritual being there. She clearly embodied herself, right? Because she conceived a child and everything, but but it's not the same. It's it was clear that the the mission, the, you know, the those who volunteered to undertake the mission to become the wizards, the Astari, and come to Middle-earth were submitting themselves to limitation, hardship, and even danger. They could die, right? And they wouldn't be ultimately destroyed, right? Their souls would return to Valinor when they died, but it was an, it was not a, a small deal if that happened. Um, Gandalf clearly doesn't want to die uh, at various points, uh, like when he's up a tree surrounded by wolves, for instance. Um so it's it is there is definitely a um a decrease of themselves. So I, I would I would be careful in thinking about like thinking about Gandalf first and foremost as as Maya facing the Nazgul and therefore kind of weighing him against Gorfindel the Elf Lord. We've talked a little bit before about the Maya versus Elf Lord question, right? The sort of weighing the the um the ups and downs of that. Um but I, I think even besides that, even even apart from the fact that elf lords and and Maiar are, are, I think, closer to a par than 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 some people give it credit for. Um, at the same time, I think even more importantly, uh, we're not just dealing with a you know a Maya revealed in his naked power in Gandalf, right? We we're all, it's a little closer to that in Gandalf 2.0, but in Gandalf 1.0, his his being is 
limited. He is he is a person. He is embodied in in the. I mean, he is a, a, a flesh and spirit joined together. He has power. He has will. But um, is he is he greater than an elf lord? I'm not sure that he is. You know, I mean, if if Gandalf uncloaked himself and had a you know, a spiritual arm wrestling match with Glorfindel uncloaked, who would win? You know, I don't know, but, um, uh, but I, I don't, I certainly do not think it's a slam dunk that Gandalf would win, especially, uh, prior to his return. Um, anyway, um, yeah, uh, Matt says the the limiting of self is a good explanation as to why the One Ring has power. It's an externalized essence, one that could get past the limitations of being embodied in Middle Earth. Um, yeah, and and is sort of um, yeah. I mean, that's getting past limitations is one of the things that the One Ring was all about, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Erokeb, I agree. Erokeb says the Nazgul may not even know exactly what the Astari are. It seems that they underestimated Gandalf on Weathertop, and in Unfinished Tales, we hear that Saruman even managed to daunt the Witch King with his voice to an extent. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think, um, I don't think they do know exactly uh, what the wizards. There's, I don't think there's any reason to think that they fully understand. Does Sauron even fully know? Does he get it? Does he? Does I mean? Is he sure exactly what they are? Um, and this leads me to. Uh, um, uh, this leads me to the f- one generally important point that I would emphasize, and it comes up in one of the sentences here in this paragraph. Um, it's always important to remember how much more we as readers, much more we as rereaders of the text, right? How much more we know than most of the people. In that there are very few people who know as much about the history of Middle Earth and the backstage intentions of everybody and what's going on. We know way more than anybody. I don't think there's anybody who knows what we know, right, at this point. Um, so there are so many times that we can forget that, right? We we assume everybody must know, right? This was really relevant back way back in Chapter 2 when we were talking about, like, why is Gandalf so slow in the uptake to figure out that this is the One Ring by process of elimination? It should have seemed obvious from day one. What was the problem, right? Well, the problem is that he didn't know what we know, right? Um, There was a lot of reason to doubt, a lot of reason to be uncertain at that time. Um, Yeah, good. Uh, Cecilia is pointing out that in the thinking about arm wrestling, right, uh, remembering how close Finrod came to defeating Sauron, right? Just one-on-one uh, in their song battle back in the Silmarillion. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good context to, uh, to remember. Um, uh, anyway, so, so yeah, there, there, there are lots of people who don't know stuff. So the, the sentence that I'm thinking of, right, is where he talks about Gildor, right? Um, when he says, uh, some of my kindred journeying in your land beyond, beyond the Baranduin learned that things were amiss and sent messages. They said the nine were abroad and that you were astray bearing a great burden without guidance. Now, what does that mean? What does Gorfindel know? What does Elrond know? What does Gildor know? Right? So is, is this, are we supposed to understand this as code? Right? I think I always assumed that. 
right, for, out of the first, I don't even know how many years I was reading this text, when Gorfindel said that, bearing a great burden without guidance, right? I always imagine Gorfindel not actually winking at Strider, right, but being like, I'm not going to name it here, but a certain great burden of which we know without guidance, right? That was how I read Gorfindel's line there. Um, I, I, no, I, that's not true. I don't, I, I, I can't believe that. Certainly not. Maybe Gorfindel knows. Maybe. Does Elrond even know at this point? It's not clear. Um, does Gildor know? There's no way. Gildor doesn't know, right? So what does he do? What does he, he perceives something. He perceives that Frodo is bearing a great burden without guidance. He can sense in his conversation with Frodo that Frodo's journey is more than just a hobbit leaving town, right? He knows there is more at stake here. Um, he, can, he, he can tell that, right? We, we were looking at his comments, you know, his, his famous, um, you know, if chance you'd call it, uh, the, you know, uh, sorry, chance you call it Tom Bombadil, but, you know, in this meeting there may be more than chance. You know, Gildor has a sense. Okay, this is, this is important. I don't fully understand why, but this is important. I don't perceive exactly what's going on, but you're, this is, this hobbit is carrying something, right? Fourth Dauntless, exactly. Uh, the nine are chasing him, probably not for no reason, right? Um, uh, exactly. So when Gildor says he's, they was bearing a great burden without guidance, I think that is the extent, in fact, of G- Gildor isn't being cagey here. I think he de- that's all he knows. Does Gorfindel know? Does Elrond know? I think Gandalf mentioned... You know, casting my mind back to chapter two when we talked about this, um, I think there is reason to think that Gandalf has had conversations with uh, Elrond about this before, and certainly when he comes back to this in Unfinished Tales in the in the Unfinished Tales material um, after the Lord of the Rings, he. Uh, certainly includes some much more explicit conversations between Gandalf and Elrond about Gandalf's fears and suspicions, right? So, uh, so Tony, yeah, that's how I would read it, too. Um, if Elrond hears Gildor saying, he seems to be bearing some kind of great burdens, but, uh, great burden, but Gandalf isn't around, so he doesn't have any guidance, uh... Elrond is probably going to be able to parse that, right? And be like, oh, this, ooh, that, that could be really, oh, so there's a hobbit loose with no guidance carrying what could very likely be the one ring, right? The lost one ring, uh, and the Nazgul are closing in on him in the wilderness. Great. Okay. This, so when, uh, when, uh, Elrond sends out the troops here, right? The troops being chiefly Gorfindel, uh, I, I see every reason to think that he is reacting at least to that possibility, right? But even Elrond doesn't know for sure. I, I, I don't think he knows for sure. Um, yeah. Um, Eric Hebb says, one does have to wonder how many great burdens exist in Arda that all of the nine would be sent to pursue. You gotta think that it it's, it's it it doesn't look good, right? Uh, I mean, certainly the presence of the Nazgul would seem to support Gandalf's earlier suspicions. But again, this goes right back uh, to um, 
this goes right back to the earlier discussion from chapter two. Remember that it has been accepted by the wise. Like it's it's it is it has been a known fact. Um, uh, it's been filed in the in the in the the category of accepted fact by the wise that the one ring is gone from the world. Right. Um, so. And this is something that a lot of people forget because we know it actually is the one ring, right? So we're like, well, how could you not see that? The answer to that question is always really simple. If you believe that that's not an option, then you're not going to see that, right? Because you're going to be thinking about every other possible option. Um, So, I mean, could he be sending the Nazgul out to retrieve other rings of power? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that he exerted his power, for instance, to collect the seven, right? You know, yeah, uh, Tony, yeah, Narya, right? Who knows where Narya is? Narya's AWOL, right? Uh, I mean, does anybody believe Kierden's still hanging on to that thing? Who knows where that thing is, right? Um, So could there be one? Now, again, is Elrond going to be in any doubt about that? No, Elrond knows where Narya is, but still, right? Uh, the, the answer to the question, what on earth could he have possibly sent um, uh, the Nazgul out to search for? It's there's 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 a list, right? There could be several things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no trifle. Absolutely, Elrond knows that Gandalf has the ring. There's no question about that. Uh, the other bearers of the, the you know, Galadriel and Elrond, no. Uh, of that, I have no doubts whatsoever. Um, but again, the answer to the question, what could he possibly be sending the Nazgul out for? There are there are items on that list other than the One Ring. And if you accept the idea that the One Ring is not in the game anymore, right, then you're going to think about those other things as more likely possibilities um, than, uh, uh, than than the One Ring. Uh, now, again, Gandalf has presumably shared his suspicions with Elrond about the One Ring and, and maybe about Bilbo's ring itself. Um, so, uh, is Elrond... Yeah, again, d- d- does Elrond get the message from Gildor and put you know, two and two together and think, you know, okay, there is there is a very strong possibility that the ring of power is out there wandering, being closed in on by the Nazgul, and we're all going to be hosed. Yes, I think that it's very possible that, that Elrond has come to that conclusion. Not definite. It's not guaranteed. I don't think, excuse me, anything Gorfindel says here proves it. But I think it's very possible. One of the lost Silmarils. <laughs> no, I can't even. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> did somebody post a Silmaril emoji in response to that comment? Never seen that one before. Okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Tony, you found that one? That's good. That's good. Um, oh, and Mudmore, I absolutely agree. Uh, Glorfindel is the brute squad. No question. <laughs> no question. Um, yeah, good. Um, all right. Let's see. Nine days. He set out nine days ago. Um, 
somebody remind me of our chronology here. It's been like already, what, 12 days since Weathertop or, or close to that, right? So Glorfindel would have left Rivendell after the attack on Weathertop, which means several days. It's the 18th now? Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't remember the, the calendar dates here. Um, but, um, yeah, so, I, right, so it would have been a substantial amount of, it would have been while they were in the wheeled, obviously before they crossed the, the, the bridge, right? Um, yeah, he, he leaves Rivendell on the ninth trifle. Thank you for consulting the calendar, which I don't have time to consult while in the middle of class. Yes, yes, which means uh, almost a week after Gandalf's confrontation with the Nazgul on Weathertop, several days after their confrontation on Weathertop. So they're still, uh, in the, you know, having just crossed the road, uh, and they're um, still getting to the bridge uh, there. Which means... Um, which means Glorfindel must have... How many days was it? So can you guys do the calculations here? Those of you who have the, 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 the text right at your hand here. How many days before they got to the bridge did Glorfindel arrive there? Like how, how, much, how much lead time was there? Um, how many days before them was he at the bridge? Because it seems like by that, by those dates, he must have gotten there in the nick of time to drive off the Nazgul, it would seem. Two days for Thalas? Okay, yeah. He drives them off the bridge on the 11th and they get there on the 13th, right? So he, he was there two days ahead of them uh, at the bridge. So that's, you know, again, in the, um, in the, the, the schedule, right, of these, uh, of these journeys through the wilderness here, um, that's pretty... That, that's pretty narrow, right? He, uh, he, he only just made it there. Um, good thing that he was sent out when he was, right? And certainly long before Gandalf arrives. Um, and yes, Gandalf did turn aside from the road or he would have met Gorfindel. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Fourth Dauntless, on the one hand, Gandalf uh, was fleeing still. Like the four Nazgul were still pursuing Gandalf, right? And we talked about that and how that makes a certain, a, a, a pretty good amount of sense um, to uh, uh, from the Witch King's point of view, that you want to keep Gandalf on the run to prevent him from meeting up with Aragorn and the Hobbits uh, and them combining forces. Uh, Aragorn, the singer of the Baron and Luthien song, with Gandalf, you know, the pyrotechnics master who drove all of them off of the top of the hill, uh, combining with these unexpectedly uh, resilient and kind of quietly terrifying little creatures uh, who have turned out to be way more of a handful than they had any reason to suspect, right? Uh, you can see all kinds of reasons why they would want to keep Gandalf on the run. And Gandalf, in turn, of course, is happy to continue to engage. He's helping still um, by pulling the four away, which again is why there were only the five of them at Weathertop instead of all nine. Um, exactly, Marianne. So, you know, you got Frodo with with uh, the you know never knowing when he's going to drop another e bomb. So absolutely, uh, you've uh, uh, you've got they've got that to reckon with there too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Erekeb is suspecting that perhaps the Witch King recalled the four Gandalf chasers after Gorfindel managed to put the other five Nazgul to shame. Yeah. Um, which, Erekeb, if you do the math, leads to an interesting conclusion, right? The Witch King must have been involved in some of these near-miss Glorfindel conflicts, right? Um, he encounters five, right? There were three on the bridge and then two others who turned away southward, right? So he's confronted all five who didn't go chasing after Gandalf, so the Witch King must have been among them, and I, the smart money, he has to be at the bridge, right? I mean, there is no way that um, the Witch King wouldn't himself go to the bridge, right? I mean, he is going to be looking to um, uh, to trap them there at the bridge. I mean, I, I gotta think that's where he would set up. Um, he would have ridden straight to when everything seemed to be falling apart and he didn't know what to do and he was hesitant to attack them again in the wilderness for him to be like, all right, look, I'm going to get on my horse. I'm going to hightail it to the bridge. Right. And I'm going to, and you know, and two, you know, me and two others are going to wait there and then I'm going to, you know, put the two others out to, you know, be exploring and looking for them. Right. So that the idea that the witch King is one of the three that withdrew before Glorfindel, is kind of extra delightful, I think. And I agree, Tony, with um, um, with your assessment there and with Erukeb's comment that the Witch King probably has Gorfindel PTSD. Um, yeah, especially, yes, Tony points out the Witch King might have had an Angmar flashback as Gorfindel uh, comes riding up. Uh, yeah. Well, oh no, not this guy again. What what kind of uncomfortable prophecies is he going to utter now? Um, maybe I should withdraw. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, Matt, I agree. I, I, I do think um, uh, I do think that even as you say, the image of Gorfindel uh, with the two successfully advancing into the dell under Weathertop and the two uh, who are holding back um, that that division seems to be repeating itself here um, uh, at the bridge. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, cool. Anyway, so um, Glorfindel is uh, plainly awesome, right? But notice, you know, final note here on his urgency, right? Um, I fear we may find the fort is already held against us. Um, there are five behind us, and they will ride after us like the wind. Gorfindel's message is not, Phew, I found you. Now you're safe, right? Stick with me, Frodo, and you got nothing to worry about, right? You're, you know, if those Nazgul close in on us now, you're going to see Nazgul withdrawing in a hurry, right? Uh, you know, uh, if they withdrew before the people of Buckland, you're going to see them withdrawing double time when I come through. That's not his message, right? His message is not, you know all your worries are past, he's still concerned. Um, and clearly what he's concerned about is being caught between the two. He's afraid the other four are missing. He knows they were holding the bridge in strength. There is no reason to think they don't know about the Ford too. So the missing four, he believes, are likely to turn up at the Ford and be holding the Ford. 
uh, and he knows the five are behind them, so it could uh, get uncomfortable potentially even for Gorfindel uh, if they are surrounded by all nine of them uh, at the ford. Exactly, uh, uh, Corey. We get the good news and then the bad news uh, here in his assessment of their situation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder, Matt. I wonder if he's still recovering from his ex- the Witch King, if he's still recovering from his experience in the Dell. Uh, and that's why he and his uh, wingmen withdrew before Glorfindel. If he was just not up to Glorfindel at that point, right? Um, again, think about the poor Witch King here. Think about all of this from the poor Witch King's point of view, right? He's already dealing with all of these very unexpected points of resistance, right? This is not being nearly as easy as he thought it was going to be. And now and now Gorfindel shows up, right? Of all the people. Uh, I mean, this guy whom he remembers personally from that last Battle of Angmar. I mean, good grief. Oh, you're right. Uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus. They're not wingmen yet. That will be later for Gondor. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, good point. Uh... Anyway, yeah, so it, it, this is um, <laughs> no fair, says uh, Tormarth, and I agree. Yeah, you, you just got to imagine this is going to feature in his report, right? Did I emphasize, Lord, exactly the odds that we were facing here, right? This was, this was, the, and this was before the river decided to eat us. Um, yeah. Corey, I wonder, Corey is uh, thinking, I, you know, she feels like the, that, Glorfindel might have mentioned if the Witch King were on the bridge. Maybe. But I'm not sure he would. Um, That doesn't seem to me a guarantee. Um, I mean, notice that he doesn't mention him anywhere, and presumably Glorfindel knows he's among the nine, right? So he's listed all of the nine and doesn't talk about him anywhere along there, right? So um, I don't think that he is... um, um, necessarily thinking in those terms at this point. Um, he doesn't seem to, you know, maybe just because it's afraid, he doesn't think that Frodo's going to really know the difference, right? Why bring up personal history, right? Um, uh, and I'm not sure Fourth Thoughtless, you know, both Tony and uh, uh, Fourth Thoughtless are, are, are wondering um, if he would be able to perceive him. I mean, would he, would he be able to tell? I mean, is he labeled? He probably doesn't have a floaty name above his head. Um, but uh, <laughs> Glorfindel rides with floaty names off. Um, sorry, low to a reference. But, um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it, maybe not. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would. Maybe he wouldn't. I'm not really sure. Um, uh, it's possible, as J.J. and uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus are suggesting, you know, the dude barely registers, you know, on Gorfindel's scale, so why would he notice this kind of thing? Um, But, um, yeah, it seems possible. Erukeb is suggesting that servants of Sauron seems kind of dismissive. Um, Glorfindel probably doesn't hold them in high enough regard to give their leader a title like king. Yeah, I agree. If he was the witch king, he was the witch king of all. He ain't the witch king any longer. right? He ain't king of anything at this point. Um, uh, and Gorfindel helped to see to that, actually. right? He was there when he was unkinged uh, way back when. Um, so, yeah, I suspect that um, um, 
he might be unwilling to call him that just for the sake of not uh, not wanting to boost his ego in uh, uh, um, in 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 absence. We'll talk about um, we'll we'll talk about whether or not he can see the ring wraiths. I agree with Matt. I kind of suspect that Gorfindel can see them, um, but anyway. Um, and yes, Veronica, there he does have a lieutenant. He does have a second in command, uh, uh, Kamal. Um, he gets named in unfinished tale in the unfinished tales uh, uh, material, uh, but um, that certainly after the fact, none of the you know that he his identity wasn't uh, uh, established until long after Tolkien had actually written these passages. So. Um, we don't see that idea being brought in sort of natively to the narrative here. Um, it's mostly like a sort of a fun, a fun after uh, uh, thinking that, you know, Kamal was the one who was on the, uh, he, he's the one who was at Buckleberry Ferry, I think, that Sam saw in the distance, right? We just happened, you know, Tolkien tells us that, right, in one of his writings. Um, it's fun to think about. Uh, oh yeah, it was the Lieutenant of Dol Guldor over there at Buckleberry Ferry. But again, it, it's not like it really enters into the story at that point. Um, he, he's the one that the gaffer talks to. Yeah, I think that's right, Trifle. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, I have an idea. Let's do a second slide. <laughs> okay. While Glorfindel was speaking, the shades of evening deepened. Frodo felt a great weariness come over him. Ever since the sun began to sink, the mist before his eyes had darkened, and he felt that a shadow was coming between him and the faces of his friends. Now pain assailed him, and he felt cold. He swayed, clutching at Sam's arm. "'My master is sick and wounded,' said Sam angrily. "'He can't go on riding after nightfall. He needs rest.' Glorfindel caught Frodo as he sank to the ground, and taking him gently in his arms, he looked in his face with grave anxiety." Briefly, Strider told of the attack on their camp under Weathertop, and of the deadly knife. He drew out the hilt, which he had kept, and handed it to the elf. Glorfindel shuddered as he took it, but he looked intently at it. "'There are evil things written on this hilt,' he said, "'though maybe your eyes cannot see them. Keep it, Aragorn, till we reach the house of Elrond. But be wary, and handle it as little as you may. Alas, the wounds of this weapon are beyond my skill to heal. I will do what I can.' but all the more do I urge you now to go on without rest. Um, Sam. we got to start with Sam here for just a second, right? Keep in mind, this is Mr. Elves, sir, right? This is like, I've always wanted to go off and see elves, and... Uh, this is now the second elf set of elves that he's he's met one set of elves already, right? This is his second elf encounter of his life, right? And surely he can tell that this elf is greater than even the elves that he met before, right? Um, And he's cheeky, right? I think that Sam is angry at Glorfindel here, right? Um... This sort of reminds me of uh, of Sam lecturing Faramir, right, uh, in the Two Towers, right? See here, Captain, right? Um, 
Yeah, Trifle, I agree. It's not that he's ticked off at Gorfindel here, but Gorfindel uh, wants them to, to go on, right? And Sam is Sam is angry, right? My master is sick and wounded. He can't go on riding after nightfall. He needs rest, right? I disagree with you, Mr. Elf Lord, sir, right? Um, the first thing Sam does upon meeting, upon, you know, beginning his second elf encounter ever uh, is to give a stern talking to to the elf lord in question, right? Um, and that's pretty cool, I think, actually, right? And he, let me let me add one other thing here. Sam, you'll remember, um, uh, he loved old Mister Bilbo's stories, right? And he particularly loved hearing stories about the elves. I would consider it a non-zero chance that Sam has actually heard the story of Glorfindel and the Balrog, right? I think that there is a non-zero chance that old Mr. Bilbo told him the story of Glorfindel and the Balrog, right? So that it is possible, it is possible that when Sam meets Glorfindel here, he recognizes him, right? So that he's not only having an elf moment, he's having a celebrity elf moment moment, right? Uh, Sam might well be. I, I think it's conceivable. Again, I don't, I don't think there's positive evidence for this, but I think it is, it, you could make the argument that um, Sam is at least, is, 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 is more aware, possibly, than any of them. Frodo might be if he were totally, you know, uh, in his right mind here, but, uh, but certainly more than Merry and Pippin likely to, like, recognize Glorfindel's name and realize that this dude is a big deal. Um, uh, would he know that this Glorfindel was that same Glorfindel? Well, again, it depends on how much old Mr. Bilbo taught him, right? Did Mr. Bilbo teach him enough to for him to know that elves don't reuse names? Um you know, possibly. Um, anyway, again, I'm not saying it's it's guaranteed, but I think it's conceivable that at the very least, going through Sam's mind right now are some of those, you know, that it's probably not only the Gilgalad poem that, that Sam has in his head, right? That he's memorized of the of these first age pedagogy poems uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, first and second age, of course, um, that, uh, Bilbo has has taught him, right? Um, and yet, right, meeting his second elves ever and uh, uh, and um, uh, you know, encountering an elf celebrity, the first thing Sam does is give him a stern talking to, right? He can't go on riding after nightfall. He needs rest. And that's flat, right? Sam is not is not having any nonsense about that. Um, uh, yeah. So. So yeah, I do think that um, this is pretty cool, uh, and certainly an example of the pluckiness of hobbits. And I, I agree with uh, uh, the. I I missed who was it who said it a little while back. Um, that uh, uh yes belongsman said uh like uh like gaffer like son um yeah 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 exactly um yeah good um yeah irindus was just thinking a similar thing 
bringing to mind the interactions other hobbits had with the Black Rider. Yeah. Um, and I agree that uh, with uh, Arden Crayon that it, it does show us a lot about Gorfindel's character, that he doesn't, he's not offended, right? He doesn't dismiss Sam out of hand. Um, uh, he looks in his face with grave anxiety, right? Gorfindel didn't know. He didn't know about the, in- the injury. It hadn't come up yet, right? Uh, Sam is going to make darn sure it comes up and that he knows about this. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, but yeah, it's even less than what he says. It's, it's the anger, right? He is outraged at the idea that like, we're just going to send Frodo on a forced march, right? Under these circumstances. Um, but anyway, let's look at the Frodo's interaction with, uh, with Frodo here. Well, no, first, let's start with the description of Frodo. Um, I'm not 100% sure exactly what we're supposed to understand here. Um, the shades of evening deepened. Frodo feels the wearing, a great weariness come over him. Ever since the sun began to sink, the mist before his eyes had darkened and he felt that a shadow was coming between him and the faces of his friends. That sounds like a really big deal. It is not unlike what we have seen before, but I think it's it's a step further, right? How far is the question? Um, pain is assailing him, and he feels cold. Again, this, this seems different from what has happened before. Uh, his collapse here is clearly... We saw him collapse out of exhaustion... Uh, before, after their hike up the, you know, to the to the the, the saddle pass, heading back down to the road, um, but um, but we've never seen him to this point before. This is my question, essentially. Um, if Gorfindel doesn't show up, do, does he make it? Is Frodo succumbing here and now? Would Frodo have succumbed to the power of the wound this very evening? Is this is this the very first stages of what the end game looks like in Frodo's dealing with this wound? Um, it sounds similar to me. Um, I mean, I this this I, what else would it look like, right? I mean, this kind of sounds like what it would look like if uh, the shadow is coming between him and the faces of his friends. One thing for, for it to be gray and like a mist, right? If the shadow def, uh, descends um, and cuts him off, if he's losing touch with... Um, if he's losing touch with the waking world, right? With the sunlit world, with the world of his friends, with the physical world around him... Um, and collapsing into unconsciousness, right? I mean, that's, he's like actually losing contact with it, um, both in his vision and in his own consciousness, right? And the pain is assailing him and he's getting cold all over. I mean, this sounds like the beginning of the end. I'm not sure Frodo survives to the, to the, to the morning, if not for Gorfindel here. Um, it seems to me that we really are supposed to understand there's there's a significant degree of you catastrophe here, not only for the fact that Gorfindel is able to help them, um, and possibly serve as some protection, uh, you know, an inducement for Nazgul to withdraw, um, but that Frodo really doesn't make it 
uh, if Glorfindel doesn't intervene here. Um, yeah, so um, again, I, I, I don't think we can absolutely prove that, but I think it looks very, very grim, right? Um, the grave anxiety of Glorfindel would seem to support the fact that uh, Frodo is um, in a really bad place right here, right? Um, so let's look at what happens there. Strider brings out the hilt and hands it to the elf, and Glorfindel shudders when he touches it, but looks at it intently, right? Um, Be wary and handle it as little as you may. There is still power in this hilt, right? This is another reason why I've been waiting for this moment, right? You you know I've been uh, opposing the idea for a long time that this was just intended to be a one-shot throwaway weapon, right? Um... I don't believe that. And this is, passage is one of the reasons I don't believe that. This is not a, you know, the, the hilt of the, of the dagger that stabbed Frodo is not the sort of, you know, Middle-earth equivalent of a shell casing right after the shot has been fired. Um, this is, uh, this is um, still, there is still potency for evil in this blade, or in this hilt. Right, um, to the extent that Glorfindel himself does not want it, it affects him. Right, I mean, he has a a negative reaction to it. He shudders when he handles it, and he sugge- he implies that should Aragorn himself handle it more than need be, Aragorn himself could be infected in some way by it, affected, infected, however it is that that works. Right. Um, yeah, Karina, it's exactly like it's spiritually radioactive. That seems a good metaphor, right? Obviously not one that Tolkien would use, but 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 yes, it's 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 like that. Um if you handle it, it it can it can affect you. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Interesting. Zephan is remembering this in the description of Frodo's situation here. Uh, Zephan is remembering mist in, uh, mist in twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade, um, uh, which does sound rather applicable to Frodo's situation. Yes, uh, you're right. That line in retrospect sounds kind of creepy, actually, uh, thinking about uh, um, Frodo singing that, right? Uh it would take on a completely different context here. Um, anyway, yeah, so um, it's there's definitely power, <clears throat> obviously power, not only you know past tense power. Like it's it's not just that he's reading the evidence; he's not just doing forensics here, right? Saying, okay, I can identify this weapon, I can identify the spell that used to be on this weapon. Uh, based on the runes that are, you know, uh, uh, perceptible to my vision, right uh, on the on the hilt. Um, so therefore, I can diagnose what's going on. It's not just that. I mean, yes, there's that, but it's more than that, right? The hilt itself is still um, uh, is still still has potency itself. Can still do harm, uh, even to those who carry it. Um, yeah, well, exactly, Trifle. That's exactly what, why I think what I think about the the blade, 
right? Um, between the melting and the sunlight and this passage here with Glorfindel, it does sound like this knife um, is imbued with the evil will of the Witch King itself. In a sense, perhaps, like a much weaker ring trifle. I think that the Ring of Power might be a kind of... It's not the same, of course, as you point out, but for that to be almost a kind of metaphor or a way of understanding, does, you know, is could it be in some way analogous? Has the Witch King put some of his own power into uh, the this this knife, right, uh, in order to give it the power to overcome the will of others? The more you think about it, the more parallel it is, right? Sauron poured his will into the ring in order to enable the ring to be an instrument for subjugating the wills of the elven lords, right? Um, and controlling the rings of power and their wielders. So the idea that uh, the Witch King, with his will, which is much lesser than Sauron's will and power, much lesser than Sauron's, has to a lesser extent, uh, and a, you know, a less absolute extent, imbued this you know, made this Morgul blade, this blade of sorcery, uh, right, which contains part of his own will and power to dominate uh, and control. That seems to me to work. You know, that that that, that parallel really seems to hold up. Um. Uh, so, again, it's 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 not the same. Obviously, it's not an artifact on the same level, and not only because I think the Witch King is is lesser than Sauron, but uh, you know, it's clearly not the Witch King isn't gonna, you know, collapse if uh, if the hilt is destroyed or something like that. Um, but um, anyway, so yes, I I definitely do think. Um, this passage seems to me to present some fairly positive evidence that that knife is not just a th- was not just a throwaway implement, um, and I suspect this is again why I suspect that the Witch King would have really wanted to hell on- to hold on to it, uh, but failed under the extreme circumstances uh, of um, the encounter, and in particular uh, Frodo's invocation of Elbereth. Um, uh, There are evil things written on this hilt, though maybe your eyes cannot see them. I assume he's talking to Aragorn, because it's Aragorn who handed him the hilt, and Aragorn who told him the story in the last paragraph. So this is st- we're still on the Gorfindel and Aragorn interaction, as far as I can see in that paragraph. And he addresses Aragorn by name in his next sentence. So I assume when he says, though maybe your eyes cannot read them, Aragorn is the you in question. Right, um, which is interesting because it seemed that Aragorn could read something. So, one of two things is true: either a Aragorn can read more things than Gorfindel thinks. Right, Gorfindel's not positive. Maybe your eyes cannot see them, and Gorfindel's or and Aragorn would be like, actually, yeah, I could. Or there are more things. Aragorn could read something. Clearly, we could see that. Right back when he was examining it. Um, is there more? Right, that Gorfindel can see than Aragorn could see. Right, he's not saying Aragorn could see nothing, but there's more even uh, even beyond that. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, trifles thinking about again the the ring vibes, right, with the letters that uh, cannot usually be seen. Um, 
like the fiery letters on the ring, Tony. Exactly. Um, yeah, maybe. You know, uh, you know wh- whether he can just see them because he. It seems to me. Thinking to what we're going to be told about Gorfindel later on, um, my guess here is simply that Gorfindel, when he looks at this, can perceive more directly the power of the Witch King itself, right? The the power, the will that he imbued this knife with, um, that he made this knife with, quite likely. Um, but... Um, so there may be actual engraving on the you know on the thing there may be things that Aragorn can read there may even be some kind of you know runes of power that Aragorn can see and is aware of right but that doesn't mean that Aragorn you know Aragorn being only human and not being able to perceive the same things that Gorfindel knows that he can perceive that Aragorn can't um uh, there you know he he's seeing much more about this than he knows it, it's likely that it, Aragorn's able to see. Um, so, that seems to me more likely than for there to be a more kind of mechanical explanation. Like, for instance, yeah, so uh, Veronica, like them being in black speech and Aragorn not speaking black speech like none of the rangers do, right? Um, sorry, another Lotro low, low joke at the expense of uh, poor Candyth. Um But, um, Anyway, uh, it seems to me more likely that this is a spiritual perception that Gorfindel is bringing to bear here, which he knows is just not available to either Aragorn or any of the hobbits. Um, yeah, Matt, that's exactly the kind of direction uh, that I'm thinking about there. Um, a different kind of writing, not not writing in a literal sense, right? Um, uh Glorfindel seeing the words that are sort of, you know, scribed with, uh, you know, in, in which are inscribed the will of the Witch King. That's that's the kind of thing that I was thinking of, certainly. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, what does he do? Well, we haven't seen him do anything yet other than catch Frodo take him gently in his arms and look in his face with grave anxiety. So here he's still in diagnosis mode, right? Um, he can tell just from looking at the weapon that the wounds of this weapon are beyond my skill to heal, right? He doesn't need to see anything else to know that somebody who's been stabbed by this thing, I can't, I can't heal them completely. Um, I will do what I can but all the more do I urge you now to go on without rest. Um, yeah. Um, this is That's his response to Sam, right? Um, which Sam is clearly going to take from him, right? You know, he's saying to Sam, just like Aragorn showed respect for Sam's concerns, Gorfindel is in that final comment too, right? If you care, but I, I get that you care about your master. I totally get that you're worried that he is wounded and sick. If you're worried about that, don't try to spare him 
you know, speed, right? Don't try to spare him exertion. Um, yes, he needs rest, but he needs to get to healing sooner, right? It's not time for uh, convalescence. It's time for the ambulance, right, to the emergency room. Uh, that's what it's time for. It's time for haste. It's not time for rest yet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony thinks there must have been prior cases of rafifying in order for them to know what's happening here. Yeah. Um, yes. Don't forget about the lesser rings. Um, what would be their effect on mortals? Has anyone faded before? Trifle, you're right. We do know Boromir the First of Gondor takes a Morgul wound. He doesn't become a wraith, but he uh, um, he is uh, uh, wounded. One of the things that I can't get away from, and that I don't think Tolkien totally left behind either, is the original concept. So, I already talked about this ages ago, but just to refresh your memories, um, when Tolkien's, in Tolkien's original thought about the Rings of Power, even before the idea of the one central ruling ring had even really uh, solidified, um, Tolkien's initial concept of the Rings of Power were that the Rings of Power, like the whole, Sauron's whole strategy with Rings of Power, he made bunches of Rings of Power, Right. And like gave them away like candy, you know, kept like putting them in every uh, in every kid's, uh, uh, you know, Halloween basket as they came to his house every year. Right? I mean, he, his job was just like, I'm going to give away as many of these rings of power as possible. Wraithify those folks. Right. They'll turn into wraiths. Then they'll drop their rings again. Then they'll, they, they chuck their rings away. It's how it's supposed to work. And then somebody else picks it up and we get more rates, right? So this is like creating a, um, creating a wraith epidemic, right, was like Sauron's original uh, strategy with the rings of power. And I say original, I mean in the early drafts that, that Tolkien officially abandons that uh, later on, right? Um but this was the very first idea that he had about how the rings of power work. And I, um, I take Gandalf's reference to the lesser rings, um, as some kind of, almost a concession to the idea that, like, maybe that idea is not completely dead. Remember, this is a, uh, this is a very frequent caution of Christopher Tolkien's when he's editing Tolkien's earlier drafts. He, he says this uh, in the history of the, of the Lord of the Rings books a lot. Um, just because a passage gets cut from the original draft and does not appear in the final draft does not mean that Tolkien definitely decided against it. It's not, ev- it's not proof that Tolkien definitely decided against it. Um, sometimes that idea remains and remains perfectly valid just not talked about explicitly in the text anymore, right? Um, is that is there some extent to which that is true, still remains true here? Are we to understand that there were previous examples of wraithification um, that they have to work with? A couple of you are bringing up Barrow Whites as a possibility. Um, possibly. Uh, remember, again, that was the original conception of the Barrow Whites, um, 
so uh, that is the when when the Barrow Whites were first brought in uh, to the story that the Ringwraiths were Barrow Whites. Um, so the connection between Barrow Whites and uh, 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 wraiths and the wraithification process, again, that was a, another idea that was there. He's moved away from that. There's a different story now behind the Barrow Whites. But, but again, is it totally gone? I, I don't really know. Um, certainly they are an example of... Um, um, uh, they are an example of wraithly spirits, right? Who seem to be connected to spirits of formerly living people, right? Like former Dunedain princes, for instance. Um, connected in some ways. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, Eric Hebb, I agree that uh, the lesser rings Gandalf mentions were el- rings made by elves for elves. Agreed. Um, but does that mean there was never any um, there's never any instance of Sauron? Sauron would have corrupted those too? Would they ever have, would anyone have ever been wraithified? Uh, even a mortal who got one? I don't know. I mean, again, like, it's, was there any story out there? Does, when Gandalf brings up the idea of fading, when he explains what happens to a mortal who keeps a great ring, he's speaking as if this is not completely theoretical. Right? That's one thing I keep coming back to. Right? When Gandalf talks about this, even like the comment that he makes about Gollum, right? He certainly had not faded. He is thin and tough still. Um, uh, you know, again, he's speaking as if he has certain information on this. And no one, if only the great rings can make people fade, the only precedent for this is the nine ring wraiths themselves. I mean, that's that's the only precedent that there would be. Um, maybe that's enough by itself. Maybe the fading that he's talking about is just based purely upon the model of the nine. Um, it's possible. But I think it's possible that wraithification is kind of a thing. Here's another thing. Frodo's comment in the, in the marshes, right? Um... When uh, when he talks about if you know if the I hope the thinning process won't go on indefinitely or I shall become a wraith, right? That has an air of something like um, not a traditional saying exactly, not an aphorism precisely, but um, a thing that people say. Uh, some kind of that it's not totally out of left field, right? Um, the idea of living creatures thinning and attenuating and becoming wraiths seems potentially to be something in the culture, even, right? Um, now you can say Frodo's saying it; he's thinking about what Gandalf said about fading, and you know. By now, he's talked to his friends about this, and they're on board with the fading business, and they're on in the know about that, and so he's making a reference that only they would understand. 
possibly, possibly. Um, but um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, it, it doesn't quite sound like that to me. Now, I agree, Tony. There are raids and then there are ring raids, and I'm not necessarily positing, Mad Violinist, thank you for pointing this out, I'm not necessarily positing that it's only the rings of power that bring about wraithification and other Morgul wounds, such as, like, this one, right, um, uh, are also possibly enough to, um, um, to bring about the, the precedent, right, of living creatures being tainted and corrupted and turned into wraiths. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Rinroos, no, I'm totally convinced that the proper emphasis on that sentence is on shall, or I shall become a wraith. Completely agree. Wasn't it Tom Hillman who pointed that out? Um, yeah, that's completely changed my reading of that, of that sentence. I absolutely think that that's the case. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, let's, um, you know, we only have so much to, so much to go with here, but one way or another, whatever is the basis of it, it does not seem that the reaction to Frodo's condition is, holy cow, what's happening to this guy? Right? That does not seem to be the reaction. They're looking at this, and I think Gorfindel's looking at this, and he's being, he's like, Holy cow, this guy is like 90% wraithified right now, right? Like, this dude is becoming a wraith in my arms as we speak. Uh, seems to be the cause of the grave anxiety uh, of Gorfindel here as he's looking at Frodo. Uh, oh no, not again, <laughs> James, exactly. Um, so, however it happens, it seems to me pretty clear that wraithification is a known phenomenon, right? Is a known... Uh, 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 condition, right? Um, which, uh, which he, uh, is, is aware of the concern for. Um, and Eric Hebb, I agree. Glorfindel is going to be more aware than anybody else, right? He's going to be able to perceive. Frodo's going to look different to him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree, uh, 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 Eric Crouch. Hey, good to see you again, by the way. I haven't seen you in a while. Um, uh, Eric, that um, Gandalf suggests the comparative strength of men and hobbits, how they would bear up under the, the Morgul blade, it does seem like a thing, right? Um that most likely in the wars with Angmar or something again, remember Boromir the first, Morgul wounds are a known risk, right? Uh, and there must be precedent for this kind of thing. Um, Glorfindel has probably seen wounds of this kind before. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. All right. Um, I should probably stop there because it's getting late, uh, and I'm—I've uh, not been a hundred percent well lately. Uh, I'm having some—I don't know—minor illness issues, 
much better today than I was yesterday, uh, but I probably shouldn't push it and go super late tonight. I still do want to do field trip. Um, so I'm going to stop there. I mean, hey, we got through two slides, right? Plus the questions, plus the announcements. So, man, that was uh, that was a lot. I've been joking with... Uh, I've uh, been talking with the uh, the Prancing Pony podcast guys. Uh, if you guys don't listen to the Prancing Pony podcast, they, I, they're they're a wonderful po- uh, Tolkien podcast. Big fans of theirs, and uh, they're doing uh, their slow uh, go through the Lord of the Rings. Not quite as slow as ours is, and we we've been talking on Twitter about uh, when are we gonna w- when are they gonna catch up with us, right? Um, which uh, we suspect might be somewhere around, somewhere in the Council of Elrond, they'll probably catch up sometime uh, towards the end of the year. Um, and uh, when we do, we should do it. We should totally do a joint episode, which I absolutely think we should do. Um, but uh, but I was joking with them uh, when uh, uh, when we were having this discussion that they were like, oh yeah, and we we might get, we, we're we're hoping to get to the end of book one by July, and I'm like, me too. <laughs> I've only got about three or four pages left. So I think, uh, I totally think I might make it by July also. So we'll see. So far, we're on pace. I think, we, I think we'll beat the, that, that July prediction. Um, yeah, cool. All right. Um, yeah, but speaking of which, the, the Prancing Pony guys are going to be at Texmoot. They're going to be guests at Texmoot. Uh, so I'm going to get to hang out with them. I saw them at Mythmoot last year. They're going to be at Texmoot this year. Uh, so another reason to come to Texmoot if you're anywhere around. All right. Um, cool. So thanks very much, everybody. Uh, I'm going to let the Twitter folks go. Uh, so don't forget that we're, um, uh, we're going to be, so I will be back again next week. I should be back for Tuesdays for a while now, uh, through sometime in February, I think. Um, so, uh, so that'll be good. Anyway, uh, thanks, everybody. So I'm going to uh, stick around if you would like for the uh, field trip. We're going to be over. Uh, I'm, I'm switching entirely to uh, Twitch, twitch.tv slash SigdomU. Uh, and I will see you guys next week. Okay. And sadly, Valori couldn't make it tonight. She is much iller than I am. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be on my own for the field trip here tonight. All right. So are we ready? Crick Hollow Gang, let us uh, head back to Trollshaws. So let me look at the map for a second. Map, map, map. Ah, love the new map. Okay, Trollshaws. So... We explored most of this region up here in the northern Trollshaws, right, above the road. And we've just been exploring down here in the Talbruin Inn. I think there's there's a couple things down here that we can still uh, go and look at. In particular, uh, that place here across the river that we were uh, seeing from a distance last time. Um, so let's look at that, and then we'll work our way back up the river towards um, uh, towards the fort. So we'll uh, we'll see if we can get there, and then we'll cross the river more or less with Frodo. Okay, so that's the plan. All right, so let's head back out, and we'll 
do the same until we get to Rivendell. We'll keep. Oops, took the corner too sharp. We'll do the same route through Oscar Ruth. Um, and then when we get to Rivendell, we'll go straight there. All right. Okay. All right. I love coming down the scholar stair and then up past the prancing point. Ah, leg. Okay. Um. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd ever thought before tonight about that question. <clears throat> well, which question? About the question of... There's a bunch of things I hadn't thought about before tonight. Hello there. Um, one of the things I hadn't thought about till tonight is where was the Witch King? Um, that idea that the Witch King was likely one of the three who withdrew from the bridge. Uh... I'm I feel pretty convinced of that. It's hard to believe he wasn't I mean, they again they encountered he encountered all five. He must have encountered him and I would think he had to have been that. Um and that never occurred to me before that the Witch King was one of the three who withdrew upon Gorfindel's approach. Alright. What do you need? I need to head to Oscar Ruth. There we are. All right. Here we are in Oscar Ruth. So as I recall, I was expecting to find the ruins at, uh, what are they called? Oh, wait, no, I'm not going to have them here. Okay. I think we can hint out here. Um... I was expecting to find the ruins down there in, in was it Talbrunen? Um, uh, Echad Kendalith, what is, is that what it's called? I'm forgetting the name. Um, down there in the south. Um, I was expecting to find those to be elvish ruins, not remembering exactly, and we found they were Rudaurin. Um, remarkable, especially for ruins south of the road, Though, of course, we did already find that southern passage. You know, we have every reason to think now that everything <clears throat> on that side of the river uh, uh, was uh, uh, Rudaran territory. Um, and that it seemed to be one of those sort of pleasure sites, right? Not really... Although it was built high up on a hill, it's not really 
fully built. And we see all those gazebos and stuff around where all those Angmarim are hanging out. Um, so uh, it seems that the Rudaran, um, the old Rudaran kingdom, treated that whole area as a sort of vacation spot, right? And it's interesting as we penetrate further behind the lines of the the you know behind the what would have been the front lines uh, of the Arnorian civil war, we seem to be finding relics of more peaceful times, right? Back when the kingdom of Rudaur was a happier place. But, all right. So let us continue to explore and see what else we find down there. I think I'm going to go by the sort of straighter road. Which is going to go almost all the way to the ford. All right. Oh, still not on the map. There we are. Yes, Talbruinen. That is, in fact, the right name. Okay. Let's see how quickly I can find my way here. Across the autumnal troll shaws. All right. Through the bushes that totally didn't used to be there. And now keep almost making me lose the road. Oh, well, that's it. I almost lost it again. Oh, there's the white rock. Not only would I not have found the turnoff through the bushes, I wouldn't even have found the road if I had tried to do those initial Trollshaw's quests after the the revision, after the cosmetic upgrade of the Trollshaw's. Uh, that ring of stones that I just rode past uh, is a resurrection, the resurrection circle. Uh, uh, it's where you come back when you die. They are rocks that are covered with runes. Uh, of course, there's no actual precedent for that kind of thing. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, now exactly. So it, it's a it's it, it's an in-game mechanism. And I also find in the Troll Shaws a handy way to travel. Uh, when I was playing the Troll Shaws, I did find suicide a fairly convenient expedient for travel. <laughs> Probably not in the spirit of uh, the original conception of the thing, but uh, it did make things faster. Okay. We are nearing here now. This is the general area where Gorfindel would have caught up with them.
Oh, excuse me. Sorry. I want to interrupt your shooting of bears. And here is our friendly road troll going along. Yeah, Amethorn. See, I mean, you can see how, of course, it's intended, right? They put the resurrection circle outside the difficult area so that if you die, you get sent back to the beginning and you've got to, like, essentially start again, right? So it's designed to make it more challenging, but it does mean when you get all the way through to the inside and you finish and you've got to go, instead of going all the way back out through all the dangers and all the enemies again, uh, then, yeah, I just, like, once I accomplish the goal, you die and then you reappear on the outside again. Um... Okay, how close are we? We're getting there. Okay. Oop. Sorry. Messed up my orientation there. Is that a signal rock? There aren't runes on that rock, is it? It's just a rock. Looks like the other rock. It is set next to a path. Is this, in fact, the path I'm looking for? I think it might be. Is this the road? Yeah, this is. Oh. Almost lagged off the cliff. Okay, so we're going along the Bruin in here. There's the... We can see the Bruin, and there's the ford right there that we're overlooking. So we're going along, we're going south along the river here. Yeah, we went kind of more randomly overland as I was kind of bushwhacking, looking for ruins last time when we came south. I'm now taking the proper trail, which is a little more direct down into the Southlands. Ah, and I'm rewarded by more ruins. Look at this random Rudaran colonnade. Just a little colonnade. Originally a set of arches, presumably? making a kind of gateway on this path. There's no evidence that the path itself was ever paved. I haven't seen any paving stones. Um, but, uh, interesting, yeah, this is, and, and you know, you can imagine if this would have been really nice, right? To come through the gateway here, and then you come to this sort of vista. I mean, look at the gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful here. Again, this is, uh, the arches seem set there almost as just as a way of kind of framing the beauty here, right? Are there, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm scouting. I'm looking for ruins. You are always looking for ruins, Professor. I'm always looking for ruins. Yeah, I am. Here, hang on. I forgot to put my, uh, my earbuds in here. There we go. How are you doing, Druidsfire? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm, I'm going to make your day. We're patching Elotro. Well, not we, but they are patching Elotro tomorrow. 
So you'll want to screenshot your uh, trait trees because they're wiping them for everybody. All the trait trees are being wiped? Yep, because they had to do a thing to cap the trait trees, so they had to wipe them all out so everybody has to reset their characters. So please do that before Friday. So uh-huh. An adventure. <clears throat> yes, it will be an adventure. I actually quite enjoy that, um, retrading my characters, because I... Um, it's like rediscovery. It is actually. It's quite fun. It's it, it's, it's 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 kind of like, in a very accelerated fashion, leveling up again. You know, like. Mm-hmm. It is indeed. Now this troll was wearing a different costume than the other ones. What's he got on his arms? Are those gems? Reminds me of Hoggle. He does look like Hoggle. I think that she, quite frankly, she's wearing jewelry. Yeah, the bracelet, right? Uh huh. Is the the most also though just the proportion of his hands is a little hoggle like. Uh, mm-hmm. We're speaking of the film Labyrinth, of course, for those who don't recognize it. Of course, one of the best films ever. Yeah, uh, it. I just uh, recently watched that with uh my kids my my yeah my wife and i do uh what we call compulsory cinematic education with our kids (laughs) uh once a week we sit down and make them watch a movie that like we believe it is like they need to have seen uh and we don't want them to grow up without having uh knowing nothing about so um Mm -hmm. labyrinth is uh one that i watched with him a while back okay all right so just making sure that I knew where we are. So, over on this side, let me... I want to circle around. So, we've seen these ruins here. Um, let me go back to the road where we just were and continue to circle on around and back down to the river. And then we'll work our way back north. Because we did those ruins before. I want to follow the road, especially having seen that colonnade uh, set in the other path. There seems reason to believe that this road is connected with the old ruins, at least with the old Rudauran ruins that we see around here. So I want to see... Of course, we have the gazebos, of course, as we know. All right, so now here we've come down to the river. So we're off the heights, and we've got more trolls. Oh, and here's, yes, the river's, the road is crossing the river here. The trolls will go away shortly. It's for dawn. Right. Now, where's the... The area with all the wood trolls? That's around here somewhere, isn't it? Uh, that is going to be to the west. Yes, we're uh, we're wide of well, that. Well, the word Tal and Talbrunen in the map. Right, right. Yes, and this is the cottage to which they transplanted from Mirkwood the story of golems sneaking into windows to find cradles. Mm-hmm. I was well, so excited. That we'll get 
more of that because we know Chris Burst and the Maid of Lions are very um, evil in that regard and the leading theory of what the next content update will involve should be the Veils of Anduin, but that's not been officially announced. Right. But I took Maven there the other day. <laughs> I didn't get fired for it. Cool. Okay, so we do need to head... Yep, trolls are gone. Back inland. Okay, so... Um, Let's see. Where is it that we cut back? It's along this inlet of the river. The so here, here's trolls? where the road crossed it. Yeah, so we have to follow this yeah. up, right? Just keep following the river. Yes, that's what I thought. Because I couldn't remember in that valley, in this valley with the wood trolls if there was any historical evidence. Of course, we saw the wood trolls also in the far north up in the, what's it called? The Thinglad? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gladol. All right, hang on. Who's this dude? He's a quest guy who leads you up to the wood trolls. And he's an elf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wearing the same livery that the elves by the bridge were wearing. What's that off in the distance? That's still, uh, what's it called, in uh, Eregion that I'm seeing between the trees there, isn't it? Uh, to the south, yes, that would be Eregion. I am, yep. Wait. Um, there is Ekad Goradan, so the wolf, the wolf dudes. To the oh, the wolf dudes. Hang on, okay, well, let's find, the, let's, let's find the wood trolls first, and then I'll come back for the wolf dudes. I had totally forgotten about the wolf dudes. Wait, I lost the river. Where'd the river go? To the north. Right. There it is. Okay. All right, so when I come back down the river, yeah, the wilds of Talbruinen. Okay. took me forever to find this. I kept mistaking the woods for dead ends. I remember that unpunned. <laughs> and we had the same yes. fun with Cordovan when it was his turn, so yeah. Okay, and we got the mists <laughs> making it harder to see if there's it. So, of course, the, the trees are enormous. That might be Scenario's fault. Because the cave up here is just a natural cave, isn't it? Call any actual ruins down this away. I think all of these are. Yeah. These are. The area is called the Wilds. Right, here's the cave. Uh, wait, wait. I see post and yeah, lintel. Actually, there's some in there. Yeah, I remember yeah. now. Clear signs of construction by somebody. Trolls do not build. But yeah, what do we get? We just get this rough-hewn stone. Clearly not dwarf work. Giant. Yeah, this looks very 
with the like the, the giants and giant valley and in, in the misties as well yeah very with... square yes of course the angmerim are squatting in it but that doesn't prove anything hmm and would the trolls themselves have bolstered these caverns imagine they would. I don't think they would actually care. They'd just, you know, punch through any blockade and say, right. you know, it's okay. Yeah, I'm so not there's, seeing there's any... In that are more kind of like un, undecorated liths. Like, yeah. You know, like, I'd expect to see a Celtic spiral on some of these, like I was at Newgrange or something. Exactly, right. If this Newgrange were... isn't this tall. I've been in it. Right, yeah, but we, we we don't get any kind of the a, a hint that these are anything like the Barrow Downs or Mm-mm. anything like that. So there's no reason to think them the work of men or dwarves. We certainly haven't seen Elvish anything like this, and this is a boss, right? Yeah. That's one of the two, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. No, I never really noticed that before. Because there's the sense that the trolls, of course, are... I mean, the the wood trolls themselves are a corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, therefore, the implication that the wood trolls are not the original occupants of this cave. That makes sense. I gotta think probably giants. I mean, we'll, we'll revisit this when we see the giant lands... Um, when we get to the... Nope. Hang on. There we go. Um, it really has a giantish feel to it. It does have and, a giantish feel to it. And I went to look for the other boss, and I didn't find any change of scenery or style or anything. There is a quest in a cave somewhere where there's stuff like this, and then there's like a central big open area... And I do apologize for Thief Kitty howling in the background. Um, and there's actual, you know, I'm trying to remember where that quest is. I, I want to say in or Dunlin or someplace down that right. way. Where there's an actual sort of um, building there to indicate that, you know, this big open space was commandeered by like Agnorin or some big Dunlendings or something. I'm trying to rack my brain to find out where it is. Sure, so bad. That's what you want to talk about. Behave yourself. Right. Well, that was very interesting. I don't. I did not remember that at all there, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we have enough evidence to fit that in with anything that we've seen elsewhere. Interesting. Okay, let's go back to the wolf people then. Wolf dudes. I will catch up with the momento. Catch up with the wolf because, of course, I see tantalizingly what looks like a set of ruins down there on this map. Was right in this direction. 
There's the ruins I was seeing in the distance. And we have, it looks like, a Rudaran gazebo. With a Rudaran, oh, an Arnorian wall, which you recognize a mile away. Oh, yeah. With a big old wolf totem on it. Well, the Garadin, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yep. Classic Rudaran gazebo. But although we got that wall there along the cliff, I guess... Let's see, do we get... Hmm. Some walls. We're not getting gates, though. We're getting arches. We're getting stairs. We're getting a colonnade up on the hill. I mean, this is more like a cloister up here. Dead bodies that make... Start quests. And give you loot. Yeah, I think this is the southernmost. Mostly dead. I think this is the southernmost Rudaran structure we've seen. Is there more stuff up the hilltop or just this? Looks like a tower over there. Yeah. be interesting right. if it would be like um, a Gondorian style tower this far north right yeah well I mean it's got all that outward appearance of but did I have I ever been in here did I go into here I must have so we've got mostly tunnels uh-huh is this what you were remembering with the keep inside? Um, I actually don't remember being here before. I have no memory of this place. I have no memory of this place either. But see, this is what I was half looking for in the other cave. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this was a a hidden, you know, fastness, if this was some kind of colony. Maybe like a safe, well, an overweening safe house. This is the door out again, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, I'm coming, coming in one loop. Right, was this the was this the retreat? The way that the door looked before almost suggested that. Interesting though. There are statues over here, actual kingly statues. Ah yes, the classic three kings. We three kings of Rudower are. Yes. Then we go up and around into the, the gazebo. Nice. 
I thought we would be able to get up here. The Garadine up in Arid Lewin had this blue theme, right? This little blue mm -hmm. color yeah. motif. Pretty sure they did. Okay. Yeah. No, nice. Lots. Oop. Right. We got the end of the bridge here. Yeah, let's not fall down that. But that also begs the question: Where's the bridge going? I mean, what's behind door number one? I mean, it looks like a door across the way. Yeah, it looks. It's I'm thinking. Up. Maybe a crypt or something? Mm, possibly. Um, something like that. Or maybe a king that somebody really hated and walled up. Yeah. Like Edgar Allan Poe-ish? <laughs> yeah, it is a little Poe-ish. <laughs> This is just a cool little underground, mostly underground, entirely underground, but it has this, all the ivy and stuff gives it this outdoor feel. What was this? Reminds me of the Forest Temple in Ocarina of Time. Oh, this is cool. This is, is, is this the boss guy? Yeah, there's one downstairs too. I think he might be one of the, like, kill six of one and kill two of another kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, probably. Huh. Their totems are interesting because different from the other ones that we've seen. Maybe not from the Garudine and Arid Lewin. It's been too long since we've seen those for me to remember exactly, but certainly different from the goblin totems. Mm-hmm. They do remind me of the ones from, uh, from Evendim, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the combination of the wolf carvings and the wolf skulls is interesting, especially since, you know, like in the top one there, you've got the the howling wolf who seems to be carrying in his paws as if they're hands, right? This mm -hmm. rope with skulls attached to it. Wolf skulls, it looks like. Well, I mean, wolves have that pack mentality in that the alpha male will, you know, be challenged by a lesser male for the for the right to be the alpha male and you know, those are not exactly right. non lethal engagements. Right. So these are the these are the, the other wolves that I he's am the conquered. Strongest. Yeah. Yeah, I am the strongest. Right, anyway he's the wolf at the at the top of the totem anyway, and then you've got mm -hmm. the two supporting wolves, right? Yep. Interesting how they seem to be crying blood, all three of them. I wouldn't say that necessarily crying blood. It's like they were, you know, lesser wolves that were also in combat. I mean, I see them as claw marks. Maybe, though. It does look like blood is emerging from the eyes in all three. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know. I quite like those totems, actually. They are really nice. 
far superior. I think my favorite part is the the bits where their mouths seem to be glowing, even though there's no. I don't think yes. there's any candles in them, but the paint really gives that impression that there should be some kind of candle causing that light effect. Agreed, agreed. Especially since we saw something like that, right, with the the with the goblin statue. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm looking at it. There might be something in this one's mouth. I think. I think there are. Yes. It actually looks like a rock or something, or just the the texture. But um, for a second there, it looked like a little tiny candle without an actual flame on it. I think so. There's I definitely so. an emissive effect on it that makes it glow. It's not just paint. Right. I think it's you know, but I agree. I think it's really cool. I like it mm -hmm. a lot. I love this dev team. A much different, clearly a much different artistic sensibility than in any of the goblin or orc statues. These folks have art in their background. Mm-hmm. They got the woad going on here. Yeah. The woad goes ever, ever on. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's head. Uh, I'm going to go soon, but let's head back uh, out and then across. Uh, Down and around the corner. Uh, let's see. In between two sets of three kings. Back around the corner and out around this way. Yep. A six pack of Rudaran kings. Yeah. Uh, can't see anything. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, having hit a dead end this way, let's <clears throat> mount back up. And head back out to the Bruin Inn. Going down to the river. Okay. Headed in the right direction here. Oh, gotta go around them rapids. Okay, now are we north of Delosad or south of it? We're south of it from here, aren't we? Yeah, we are south of it. Delosad is due east of Eckhart Bruin, uh, Kendall. Right. Okay, so let's cross here. Well, actually, I'm lying. If I look at the map, the flag for Delosad is directly across the river. From here? 
Yeah, that's what it, the map says. Which is weird. I thought it was to the north of us. I know that's the... Right there is the path up to Oregon. Yeah. Palisad is definitely not to... Not across the river here from the... Don't follow me, I'm just looking around. That was my but no, the map actually too. has the flag in the wrong place then. Hmm. And there's that. The, the crumbled cellar is just due north of Delasad. Yeah, I found Delisad. It is actually to the north of the cottage. Um, oh, so it's, it's to the north of here? Yeah, it is it's it is actually directly across the river from Ekad Candela. The map is wrong. Okay. I couldn't remember which direction it was. Yeah. I just knew it was over here somewhere. And Schloff sells us in Twitch chat to watch the clock. Yes. Yes. I will. I just want to find Della said maybe we'll explore it more next time along this and uh, continue along this side of the river more. But I want to get to it and I want to I want to get to it and diagnose it, get a sense of what kind of thing we're looking at there. And then we'll continue next week. Yeah, go to the uh, the, the ruins that you see in the water on the uh, west bank, and then hang our yeah hang our right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. Kind of following the stream this delay. Well, chunk of Rudar and wall. Where did that fall from? That's a very good question. And then a double Rudaran colonnade. So clearly we're looking at a Rudaran structure here. But this immediately has this sense of... Has this sort of inner secret feeling. It's Though, interesting to me. Go ahead. Yeah. The innermost part here is a garden. You know, it sort of looks like something like a, you know, a crypt space. But it's open to the sky. Yeah, but then it's open to the skies in here. As you're coming up, it looks like you're going underground, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, let's stop here and we'll come back to Delosad and then continue up the north uh, up north here on the uh, on the the eastern bank of the Bruinen uh, and then maybe we'll get to the ford probably not next week but who knows maybe the week after that we'll get to the ford um, at least to see the ford we won't finish the encounter at the ford probably still for a while but we'll get at least the description of the ford all right, so I should probably end there as it's getting late. 
Thanks, yeah. everybody, for joining me this week. Uh, great to be back with you guys again. And I look we'll forward... We'll see you on Monday, too, won't we? Uh, Monday, yes. Ales and Tales Ales and on Tales. Monday. Yeah, on Landreval. They start yeah. later at 9 now. Uh, have you talked to L&B about scheduling when and such? Uh, no, but we'll do that. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, I do intend to co-stream it because uh, there is interest in folks hearing the entire event. So I sure. will be... Because uh, they they wanted a recording of their song for you. Oh sure, uh, which we didn't yeah. catch the last time around, so that's yeah. gonna happen. Be fine. Cool, cool. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Very good. So thanks everybody, and I will see you guys both on Monday if you come to Ales and Tales on Landreval, and then also next Tuesday for class again and i'm back tomorrow night uh for the maori class in Mythgard academy as well so be here for that then as well so thanks everybody good night night thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the lord of the rings and of standing stone's video adaptation of tolkien's story if you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.